Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello? Aaron, hey, it's Luke. Hey, Luke. I've got some trivia questions for you. Oh, you know trivia is my deal. I do. My jam. I do. Okay, so tell me this. What 80s movie is famously set in Astoria, Oregon? Oh, The Goonies. Easy. Exactly. Now, did you know that there is another movie that turns 30 this week that is also set in Astoria, Oregon? No. Yeah. 30 years ago this week in Astoria, Oregon. Could you give me a hint? Yes. Boys have a penis and girls have a vagina. Oh, Kindergarten Cop. Kindergarten Cop. Yes, of course. Yep. Astoria, Oregon. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Oh, man. I wish I'd known. What would you have done different if you had known? I mean, there's no telling. My whole life would have been different. (laughs) There's no way of knowing. Luke, I mean, who knows what kind of choices I would have made along the way. Damn it. Let's do this call again. Okay. I'll call you right back. Okay. <laughs> stay, stay right by your phone. I'm going to call you right back. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. See you, man. <laughs> see ya. From Milieu Media Group, this is 35. A weekly peek back to music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Bronner. This is Season 2, Episode 50. Big Cop, Big Flop, and Another Big Brother. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, December 22nd, 1990. Hello, friends. Here we are with this and only one more episode standing between us and the finish line of 1990. For those of you who've joined me for this entire ride, I can't thank you enough. Like, literally. I wouldn't even know how. All I can think to do is to keep moving forward and finish strong. So, let's do that. Similar to last week, we have much to cover today, including one of the funnest interviews I've done in ages. So, once again, we'll waste no time. In music this week, we saw a couple of changes on the Billboard charts, although not with regard to the top album, top overall single, or top country single. Those were all the same as last week and the same as next week. We did see a new number one song on the Billboard Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart this week in 1990, however. With Tony Tony Tony's third chart topper of the year, It Never Rains in Southern California. We also saw a new number one song on the Hot Rap Chart 30 years ago this week. 
This one, the second number one of the year for Father MC, I'll Do For You. Since we both know what we want, let's get it together and fly like two birds up a feather. Cause I'ma protect me and look out for my feelings and that's why I always try to be loyal and gentle, lay your left. Observe the females in case I must sleep camp. And if I have to break out, you don't deserve to live the good life and love the black hummingbird. Last time we saw Father MC on the charts was in September with his song Treat Em Like They Want to Be Treated, which introduced the world to the now legendary R&B quartet, Jodeci. You remember the story. The guys put a demo tape together that landed them an audition for the head of Uptown Records, Andre Harrell, who gave them a record deal and assigned an intern to work with them, an intern named Sean Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy, a.k.a. P. Diddy. Well, in similar fashion, this song, I'll Do For You, introduced the world to the talents of Uptown Records' newest, youngest, and first female artist, Mary J. Blige. She also wound up working with Diddy, who produced most of her 1992 debut for Uptown Records, What's the 411? Obviously, we'll cover that album in a couple years, but I just find it so fascinating to know that this song is where her also now legendary career really began. The last little bit of music news from this week in 1990 was the December 18th release of now solo rapper Ice Cube's debut and only EP to date, the holiday classic Kill It Will. Wait, nope, I'm sorry, I need to retract that. Turns out Kill It Will was not a holiday album at all. A common mistake, I'm sure. In Hollywood this week in 1990, we once again saw the release of some truly excellent films that couldn't beat out Home Alone at the box office. I've seen and loved two of these movies, but one is only vaguely familiar, despite its star-studded cast. The satirical comedy, The Bonfire of the Vanities, starring Tom Hanks, Melanie Griffith, Morgan Freeman, and Bruce Willis. My name is Peter Fowler, the man of the moment, the toast of the town. (laughs) But it wasn't always this way. Let me tell you how it all began. In the 80s, making money and living well was all that mattered. And no one did it better than Sherman McCoy. Now he was a master of the universe. Tom, sorry, collated. Let's not lose our composure over a few hundred million dollars. No one could resist him. Not his mistress. This could be the best sex I've had in a long time. Not even his dog. It's raining and he's not happy about it, Mr. McCoy. Here am I, Bill. I, on the other hand, was a reporter in need of a story. This is Peter Fallow, the has-been. Oh, Sean In need of a spark. Which is exactly what I got. It's a body. It looks like... It's an animal. No, no, no. I, I think it's, it's, dead? It's, it's... It's a tire. It's a dead tire? I turned that spark into a flame. Hello, Peter. I think there's a hell of a story. We're investigating an automobile accident. Yeah, on television. Last night, uh, we, my wife, we said, well, we have a... Good Lord, we have a Mercedes in this. Mr. McCoy, is there something you want to tell us? And the flame spread. Did you say Henry Lamb was an honor student? Good doesn't really apply at Rupert High. They're either cooperative or life-threatening. Nothing is going to come of that little newspaper article. Hey, Adam! There he is, Mr. McCoy! Absolutely nothing. I'm going to jail. And suddenly, I was the guy who had everything. Hey. Opportunity knocks. Someone's got to answer the door. I want to see the truth come out and burn every one of them, and there's only one way to do that. What's that? Lie. 
This film should have been absolutely massive, given the success of the book from which it was adapted and, once again, the clout of the actor's cast in all of its major roles. But it certainly was not. The movie cost $47 million to produce and only grossed a total of $15 million. Worldwide. Ever. It was a massive flop. Very possibly because of the stiff competition in theaters its opening weekend. Another comedy released that weekend that fared far better. As I mentioned in the opening call, the Ivan Reitman directed action comedy Kindergarten Cop, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, more than ever, to be a teacher requires patience, kindness, and understanding. Fortunately, Astoria Elementary has just hired such an individual. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Kindergarten Cop. Kindergarten is like the ocean. You don't want to turn your back on it. Don't worry. Everything is under control. No. He's an undercover detective. I assume you have some teaching experience. They wouldn't have sent me otherwise. Assigned to find a mother and son. Did Danny ever say what Crisp's wife looked like? Before a killer does. First, I would like to just get to know you. A male kindergarten teacher. That's unusual. He's been trained to shoot. What made you become a kindergarten teacher? He's been trained to fight. But there are some things... You mean you eat other people's lunches? Stop it! He's never been trained to handle. They're walking all over me. Listen, Kimball, you gotta handle this like any other police situation. You're going to be my deputy trainees. You're not gonna have your mommy's run behind you anymore and wipe your little douches. You are mine now. I'm not a policeman. I'm a princess. Arnold Schwarzenegger. You hit the kid, I hit you. <laughs> wow. In an Ivan Reitman film. Are you married, Mr. Kimball? No, I'm not. He's not married, Mom! Welcome to Astoria, the single parent capital of America. You got a little mustache. Must be from the milk. <laughs> Kindergarten Cop. This was legitimately one of my favorite movies growing up, and it remains, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest performances of Schwarzenegger's career. I rewatched it this week in preparation for this episode, and I honestly can't tell if it holds up because it's still so good, or if it's just because I'm so nostalgic about it. A third option could be because of how many lines from this movie were used in the Arnold Schwarzenegger soundboard prank calls that swept the internet years ago, which still make me laugh to this day. But whatever the reason, it holds up well. You should definitely revisit it if you haven't seen it in a while. Also, just for context on how poorly the bonfire of the vanities performed at the box office, Kindergarten Cop had an estimated budget of between 15 and $25 million, and it's grossed over $200 million worldwide to date. The other new release from this week in 1990, which is also well worth revisiting, was the heart-wrenching and beautiful Robin Williams drama, Awakenings. You will be working with patients, people, doctor. When you say people, you mean living people? You do want the job, don't you? Hi. I'm Dr. Thayer. I'm Wahida. Wahida. I'd like to ask I was born in 1911 in Kingsbridge, New York. Prior to July 1955, I resided at the Brooklyn Psychiatric Center, Brooklyn, New York. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> Prior to that, I was a person. 
It gets easier. You don't think it will, but it does. Can you hear me? Does he ever speak to you? Of course not. Not in words. No change in data 9-11-44. Your patients, doctor, haven't moved in decades. What I believe, what I know, is these people are alive inside. Well, how do you know that, doctor? I know it. I just wanted to say to you, I preferred your explanation. At 200 milligrams, he showed no response. Maybe he needs more. Maybe he needs less. I don't think that I could deal with losing 30 years of my life, could you? Have you thought what you'd like to do today? Everything. Leonard, where are you going? I would do all the things that you people take for granted. I'd go for a walk. I'd look at things. I'd talk to people. You work here? No, I live here. You don't look like a patient. <laughs> I don't? Girls! You're not married. Me? Would you like to go out for a cup of coffee? I remember this movie releasing, and even as an 11-year-old thinking it looked really good. But I never actually got around to watching it until this week. And I have to say, it is truly incredible. I love Robin Williams in pretty much everything, and Robert De Niro is obviously a legend. But I would call this one of, if not his very best performance on screen. There are all kinds of reasons why this movie connected so personally for me, but even without them, I think this movie is objectively a masterpiece. One interesting piece of trivia about it. In the film, Williams plays a doctor who sees tremendous results in reviving his otherwise catatonic patients when he administers large doses of a drug called L-DOPA, a drug that Williams himself was being treated with for his Parkinson-like symptoms in the months leading up to his tragic death in 2014. Heartbreaking. What a gift he was and his entire collected body of work remains today. On a cheerier note, as you're certainly aware, if you've been listening to this show at all the last few weeks, the number one film in the country yet again this week in 1990 was Home Alone. I've had the tremendous pleasure of sitting down week after week with various cast members from that perfect film. And this week, I was very excited to chat with actor Devin Rattray, who played one of the most memorable roles in that film, Kevin's older brother, Buzz. Buzz? Don't you know how to knock Flemwad? Can I sleep in your room? I don't want to sleep on the hide bed before. If he has something to drink, he'll wet the bed. I wouldn't let you sleep in my room if you were growing on my ass. In nearly two years of producing and hosting this show, interviewing all kinds of people, I will say this was one of the funnest conversations I've had. So it's my joy to share it with you now, almost entirely unedited. Here's my conversation with the very funny Devin Rattray. <laughs> Devin, 
Devin Retray, welcome to 30 Pop. It is so much fun for me to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I kind of can't believe it. I've spent my entire life watching this movie, and anybody who knows me knows that I am the type of person who I sort of celebrate Christmas year-round in the music that I listen to and the movies that I watch. And Home Alone is genuinely... Honestly, maybe my favorite movie. If if it was based only on the number of times I've seen it, it would have to be my favorite movie. And so to be speaking to Buzz himself is such a, a treat. It's uh, more than a pleasure, and I appreciate your uh, fealty to this uh, <laughs> to this legacy. <laughs> and that's, man, it, it totally is. So I would love to hear from you. We've got a few minutes to chat. I would love to hear from you how you ended up in this role. So I, I spoke with Michael a week or two ago and he told me that he actually came in and auditioned for the role of Buzz as well and so I would love to know just kind of what the process was like for you of auditioning and landing the role of Buzz. It was an audition process that was rather standard and normal for me. Um, I recall I believe the audition was somewhere in in Midtown in a hotel in the Parker Meridian Hotel when we uh in Midtown New York, when I actually got the um, callback and I read with Chris Columbus, the director, he was there in the, um, I guess it was a suite, uh, and reading with him, he did not get the part of uh, Kevin McAllister, but he read uh, the part of Kevin. uh, And we sort of uh, bounced back and forth with this uh, a very relaxed, very friendly, uh, very easygoing it felt more like a read-through rather than an audition. And I was very calm and at ease uh, reading with him and felt a very good rapport and didn't feel like I was auditioning for a film with, you know, a director in, uh, you know, this big hotel. It was a, it was a lovely, non-stressful process. And Chris had carefully orchestrated that. He had had a very good rapport with, uh, with youngsters and, I was very excited to get it, and to uh, and I was even more excited that uh, Mike Morona didn't get my part. <laughs> Do you remember what scene you were reading? Oh yes, of course. It was uh, the bedroom scene where I'm packing up yes. uh, with um, well, who ended up being Jed Cohen. Uh, Jed Cohen was the uh, actor who played my cousin. Who's going to feed your spider while you're gone? Mm-hmm. It's okay. He just ate a whole bunch of mice guts. He should be good for a couple of weeks. The original line for that, actually, what we recorded was, uh, well, there was a curse word. I don't think we can curse on your show. Oh, you're welcome. I don't know. What, the, the original line is he just ate a shitload of mice guts. He should be good for a couple of weeks. And if you watch that scene, if you watch it, You'll see my lips move, and I say shitload on camera. That's They use the take with shitload. But they had to get the rights for White Christmas, the song White Christmas, mm-hmm. written, of course, by Irving Berlin. And the estate of Irving Berlin did not want to give the rights to a song, to any movie that had curse words in it. Oh, wow. Yeah, the estate of Irving Berlin would not license the song unless... And that's the only curse in the movie, Buzz saying shitload. So I had to go in and overdub ADR, additional dialogue recording. Mm-hmm. I had to go in and ADR the word, I mean, the term, the compound word, I guess, shitload is a compound word for whole bunch. 
he just ate a whole bunch of mice guts instead of a shitload of mice guts. And in the audition, I did say shitload of mice guts. And I was very happy to say shitload of mice guts. And now I walk around my apartment occasionally uh, just randomly saying, oh, that dinner looks like a shitload of mice guts. No, I don't. Uh, but <laughs> but, but I'm gonna, uh, if I would like to continue believing that you do. That's good for my soul. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you can believe that. You, and I'll give you a, a whole bunch of evidence that I say a shitload of my scuts. Nice. <laughs> That's really funny because one of the things that we that I that Michael and I talked about was the scene where he says, um, you know, the buzz told you to pack toilet paper and water cheek face. And we were like, why cheek face? And we assumed it was because there couldn't be cursing in the movie. And so now it's it's good to have some confirmation as to why the the word cheek face was written as an insult. There's some great insults in the movie. Flimwad, I think, in that same scene. Now, let's be straight. Um all of these, uh, all of this was penned. John Hughes had penned the script before we gotten the rights to White Christmas. Mm-hmm. So, uh, cheek face, flemwad, trout sniffer, even all of these uh, were pre-written. It was just afterwards. I mean, the second film we knew that there shouldn't be any cursing. His original title was Home Alone Two: Lost in Fucking New York. <laughs> but we that was, I assume, part of Joe Pesci's writer that it had to be if he was coming yeah. back. Yeah, that makes sense. Joe Pesci was uh, rather flummoxed that he could not uh, curse or anything during the final third of Home Alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it says, you know, Marv walks off cursing or Harry walks off uh, muttering to cursing to himself or hobbles off cursing to himself. And he's like, I'm doing what the script says. And Chris had to really say, please, if you can just try and like Yosemite Sam it. <laughs> Where Yosemite is like, why you and actually just mutter nonsensical words under your breath. And Joe had to really, um, you know, wrap his head around that concept. And he will, and you do hear him saying frickin' frackin', mm-hmm. which is so much better than what he was you know, originally professional. saying. Yeah, I'm sure. I love that he had to be reeled <laughs> in on a set filled with children. That's amazing to me so okay yes. so you so you landed the role i have to assume you were of age to know well who at least john hughes probably chris columbus who they were and so was there any like fear for you coming into a movie like this or was it just excitement oh just excitement chris had uh he had done heartbreak hotel and an animated film was his first one and I think he had done, uh, he had been part of uh, Adventures in Babyland. Uh, excuse me, Adventures in Babysitting. But of course, John Hughes, it was, it was doing John Hughes's new film, which was the most exciting part. And working with Macaulay, who was the kid from Uncle Buck. Yes. That's who he was. And in fact, most of the kids actually, I mean, I was of the ripe old age of just turning 13. But, you know, the rest of them, a lot of them were younger. And we did not know, uh, I mean, Joe Pesci, I had known Joe Pesci from Raging Bull. But that's all, you know, Goodfellas had not come out. And Mm -hmm. nobody, you know, and the kids didn't really know who he was. I was excited, but only met him very briefly in the opening living room scene where he's the cop. Mm -hmm. And did not work with him again. And only met him briefly offset for the second time. But uh, it was pure excitement to work with John Hughes or on the new John Hughes film. Mm -hmm. There was no trepidation. I would love to hear what your time on set was like then. Because y'all shot in Chicago, right? 
Yes. And like how much time did you actually spend on set? Because most of the movie is, you know, it's Kevin and Harry and Marv. So I'm curious, like how much actual time you were in Chicago making this film? It was a month. Uh, I mean, it was four weeks of shooting and then coming back and shooting the last, uh, the final sequences where we all get home. Sorry, is that a spoiler alert at this point <laughs> that we make it back home? I think there's a statute of limitations on spoilers. At the 30-year mark, you're allowed to reveal the ending. Okay, all right, good. Well, the end of the movie, bad guys are arrested and old man Marley turns out to be a sweet, grandpa of a man and reunites with his estranged daughter that we never really get to meet or know anything about but we're still just tickled pink when we see them hug each other Mm -hmm. and his granddaughter on christmas morning and we all come barreling in and that was shot in april (coughs) pardon me pardon me excuse me i get all choked up when thinking about the end of this movie and uh the actual main stuff that we did was about two uh three to four weeks on and off of us shooting of course around the schedule of uh mac and the kids and you can't work kids all that much in a day as i have found out with my new sneaker company in sri lanka you can't <laughs> overwork kids that much uh they <laughs> so we would have shorter days um but that was fine with me because chicago is a heck of a town as the song goes Winnetka is um, lovely in February. Sure, why not? For, uh, that is where the house was. Mm-hmm. And rehearsing, going in and out of uh, that house over and over again into airport vans um, was just fine. But uh, no, my memories of, of uh, I, they could take as long as they want in Chicago. I had very fond memories of there and staying at the Ambassador East in downtown Chicago. I do know for a fact that I have listeners of this show who are as big a fan of Home Alone as I am. And so I just don't know if you have any sort of memories from like your time there of like, man, this is just a great memory. Like when you think back on that time outside of the scenes that we've seen in the movie, what do you think of? Now, as a recently turned 13-year-old, I auditioned for the movie when I was 12. Uh When we started shooting, I had just turned the ripe age of 13. So my club experiences with uh, Officer Balzac and John Hughes are are, are limited. We were shooting in uh, the closed-down high school. That is what John Hughes had turned into his makeshift studio. The New Trier High School, which actually um, Breakfast Club had been shot in. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was the same same, uh, closed-down high school. And that, you know... For a 13-year-old who hadn't been to high school yet, my first experience in a high school was this closed-down, shut-down, if you go into the wrong hallway, really creepy uh, closed-down high school where the hair and makeup office were in the vice principal's office space. And they had given us uh, razor scooters for the kids and the PAs to get from said vice principal's office to the set which a lot of it was shot in the gymnasium uh all the airplane scenes were in a were they had built a half an airplane cabin in the gymnasium and a lot of the house was in the gymnasium as well to get from you know the principal's office to the gymnasium we would have these razor scooters and just trying to 
dust the PAs who were um, escorting us to the office. That idea lasted about a week, giving children razor scooters in a closed down high school with just nothing but long hallways to get down as quickly as possible and to race down and for, you know, to try and knock other kids off their razor bikes while we're racing. That lasted about a week before they were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to take those scooters uh, and just have Mac and the PAs use them. Um, I have great memories of taking Mac's scooter while he was shooting and exploring the, the, these, uh, you know, no light sign, there's no, you know, fluorescent lights overhead, just these dark hallways of this high school and, you know, reading the graffiti on lockers and stuff from the, I guess, late seventies, you know, I was like, who's fog hat. Why is fog hat rule? <laughs> I remember that specifically fog hat rules <laughs> and the absolute, truly surreal sensation of going to a school to make a movie where in between shooting scenes, we would have to go to school mm. in a makeshift classroom that was an actual classroom, but no longer was a classroom. But now it was a classroom while yeah. I'm shooting a Christmas movie. And the vice principal's office is where, you know, people touch my hair and get it all spiky. Like it was just a, a surreal combination of not what an actual movie set is traditionally like. And then, you know, the editor was assembling dailies in rushes down in like the basement. And I remember that being like really dark and trying to spend my lunches watching uh, the editor work. And this is like an old school, like Steinbeck bed. Like they actually wheeled in this, it's called a Steinbeck bed where, you know, you reel in the, the, you actually loop in the film and project it on a small little projector. And you have to put your, you know, facing this little visor screen, uh, uh, receiver screen to see the actual film. Be like, it was it was totally old school inside this, you know, rather Freddy Krueger-esque basement uh, type of scenario. And me voluntarily trying to spend my lunch hours in this dark uh, place just to see the process of making a film mm -hmm. and putting together rushes. Uh, they're called rushes because you had to uh, develop them overnight. The the dailies from the day before and seeing the footage, and I totally wasn't supposed to be there, um, but I did ask Chris Columbus about it, and he said, you're interested in that, huh? And he did uh, allow me to go see dailies when they would screen them too during lunch and saw that I had a real interest in the nature of filmmaking. All these memories are not the way, you know, that the most films are, or most film sets are. And those memories, you know, stuck with me 30 years later, very vividly, uh, especially comparing them to other films where you sit around a movie set and it's kind of boring. And then you, you get all ready and you walk in and you'd be like, is my laundry not done yet? Okay, cut. We're going to go back and do it again. And it's like lines like that, you know, it's a lot of making films boring. Nothing was boring during Home Alone. I didn't have time to be bored. I mean, all of it was entirely new, making it up on the spot, improvisational in terms of like, let's put the, you know, makeshift hair and makeup. Things had changed, of course, by Home Alone 2, but all these memories were new and fascinating at the time. 
I'm going to go on for about 27 more minutes talking about how fascinating all these things were that you don't know about and didn't weren't there to experience. <laughs> I promise I'm enjoying it. So I, here's one question for you. I think I'm about the same age. Maybe I'm a, a few months older than Macaulay Culkin. So, and I think I was a year older than the character, Kevin McAllister. But I always like deeply resonated with that character, that he's the character I identify with. I felt just like him. And part of that is because I have an older brother who treated me very much the way Buzz treated Kevin. I'm curious what your relationship with Macaulay was like off screen. Was there any of that sort of brotherly, like picking on each other, kind of uh, him being annoying, any of that? I don't know. Well, first of all, you deserved it uh, from your <laughs> older brother. I just have a, an impending feeling about that. You totally deserved he it. He would agree with um, you. Yeah. Mac uh, had an older brother my age, Shane, and came from a large family. And we had a familial sibling-like relationship, but I wasn't torturing him or anything. We actually got along quite well. There would, of course, be teasing and, uh, you know, jostling. And, and, of course, him trying to break me up on film was one of the bigger things. That actually, most of the kids tried to do was try to break me up because... I was so remarkably good at making them break up on camera and not getting caught doing it. I had subtly mastered that. But especially the cheese pizza eating scene. Yes. Slowly shoveling it into my mouth during Max close-ups. Uh, he was absolutely just a puddle of, of giggles when I would slowly try to exaggerate the slow finger shoveling <laughs> in, in, of the pizza and, you know, just letting some of it, a la Officer Balzac, a la Officer Larry, uh, let some of the cheese just hang on my lip while I'm trying to say, well, if you want some of it, you're going to have to barf it up because it's all gone, kid, uh, with some of the pizza hanging off my mouth. He was just helpless at not breaking up and, of course, tried to get me back while during my close-ups, and I was stone-faced um <laughs> even to the point of him trying to tickle me at one point <laughs> that he actually got me then he he i did i did break character then when he started tickling and that was just open season then then everyone was like oh finally Kevin's weakness tickle him <laughs> so a lot of takes were physically ruined by little heads bobbing up and down in the in the on the film while they're trying to tickle my rib cage uh, <laughs> But we had, I mean, like we had a, that's what I mean by like sibling, like relationship, but in no way, like we got along great, I thought. And then during the second one, we actually made it to the downtown Chicago Pier Mall. I forget the exact name of it, where we found this new, inst I found this new installation of video, a virtual video game playing this battle tech where you would actually get inside a mock cockpit and drive this 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 battle robot we all went to we fell in love with that and all went to to play that later on in the second one and would do things you know we saw wayne's world in the theater i think during the first one and then wayne's world 2 we saw during this making of the sequel we would do fun things when we had time off and that was encouraged to actually have kid time because the work was so intense while making the film and if you want to make a movie about kids having, you know, the fun and doing all the things you're supposed to do when parents are away, 
you want that type of a relaxed work environment. And we, we had that. We had that in spades. It was a lot of fun. No boring times at home alone. That's amazing. That makes me so happy just to like know that context when I watch this movie, which I watch often and will be a lot over the next month. I just <laughs> I love knowing that like there was that real kind of fun happening off camera. Absolutely there was. Especially, yeah, watch the the, the cheese pizza scene in the kitchen. That was one of the first things we shot, jovial and uh, and clearly we got the work done. <laughs> but yeah. the close-up scene of me slowly shoveling the cheese pizza in with uh, dexterous fingers into the mouth, that, that is absolutely designed to try and break up uh, Macaulay. That's amazing. Successfully. I will say there is not another movie that I have ever seen in my life that has made me want cheese pizza more than that one. Every time I watch it, it makes me want to eat cheese pizza. It's uncanny to me. But (laughs) You know, you can't find a Little Nero's anywhere these days. Do you see that I'm wearing a Little Nero's shirt right now? I don't know if you're seeing the video, but I'm wearing a a Little Nero's shirt right now. uh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Look at that. There it is. Yeah. I told you I'm a fan, man. So the last thing I want to ask you about, you happen to also work with who has since become legitimately my favorite actress on the planet, Catherine O'Hara. I think she's brilliant in every role I've ever seen her in. And I just, I don't even know if I have a question other than to say, how lucky are you, you got to work with Catherine O'Hara? Catherine O'Hara is without hesitation, the nicest, kindest, most generous, honest, down to earth and funniest uh, person I've I've ever worked with in the business. I've said that. I mean, I discovered that just shooting the first one, and um, you know, my father was excited that I was working with her before we started shooting because he used to stay up late and try and watch SCTV, mm-hmm. and, and like she was one of the prime reasons he would watch it. Her work on that show which I was not familiar with. I was far too young, you know, um, at the time. Her work on the show is what specifically drawn my father to study it. My father and my mother are both lifelong actors, and he would study her work. And meeting her and working with her was the ease and prime joy of being on the set. Studying, I mean, if you look at her work, it's, I mean, it truly is something that you can study. Her working on... You know, the Kevin scream <laughs> is, I think, worthy of, of studying for actors. I mean, to get that pitch of hilarity and also true, you know, fear. <laughs> Maternal of, fear, of yeah. Son, the mixture of, of the two, of the comedy and tragedy in one. I mean, her work is pitch perfect in every frame of the film, uh, both films. And uh, I can't stress enough how off the set how kind and open and generous she was and always always i mean never condescending but talking to you on a on a real level i guess she basically like just also proves the stereotype that canadians are are polite and nice and friendly and genuine and honest and i'll stick by that that racist stereotype uh for until i find somebody who disproves it she was she was Tremendous, a tremendous person. And on the second one, I was do I was carrying around my own clunky video camera, making my documentary behind the scenes. Oh my gosh, would love to see too. that. And Please. yeah, and she would always like I asked for advice, you know, for young actors. This is while we were in the makeup trip in the airport, and she absolutely gave real advice. And 
was always never pandering down to me, but just a, a truly fantastic person. And I think a wonderful artist. Oh, that makes me so happy. I'm a huge fan of her work, obviously in the Christopher Guest movies. And I'm actually rewatching all of Shit's Creek right now. And I just am constantly amazed at her talent. I mean, she's just so talented. And I, I've said this, I think, on every interview that I've done so far for the film, which you are the fourth of five cast members I'm getting to interview. I have long considered, I've started dozens of podcasts. I, I just, this is kind of the medium where I exist all the time. And I have long considered a podcast that is just exploring the ways in which I think Home Alone is a perfect film. I think it is so <laughs> incredibly well thought out and well written. And so I, I'll let you know if that ends up panning out. But such a gift to get to talk to you today, Devin. Uh, so much fun. Would love to talk to you again. You should really have your own show. You're very, very funny. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I'll take your advice to heart uh, if you have time to produce one uh, uh, all ears. As long as you bring that silver banjo behind you, uh, and <laughs> Then we that could be the uh, silver banjo on the uh, uh, the Home Alone theme song would be really interesting. The pling dung, da 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 ding ding, da 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 ding 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 ding. Um, I see. I'm chock full of ideas already. I mean, I'm uh, saying you're gonna think I'm a psycho, but like that's actually my alarm clock that I wake up to every morning as well. Is that song? It's the best alarm clock. Wow. I highly recommend it. I'm not crazy. I do just love this movie, though. Well, then, uh, then I uh, encourage you wholeheartedly to explore the podcast because there are loads and loads of stories and memories from these two films that uh, that are worth exploring. And um, you know, thirty years of them ruminating in the minds of the people who are part of them, I can look back on them and see that, yeah, although the film has transcended a lot of levels of, of just regular filmmaking and um, it has surpassed a film and become an experience that has, you know, linked people's memories Truly. linked with childhoods and memories. And um, well, and just a part of people's annual like Christmas celebration, you know, like it's one that people watch every single year. Some of us throughout the year. <laughs> well, I'm very glad that uh, you, you appreciate it and I'm thankful for it. And uh, glad that you have the show where you can take the time to explore this. Absolutely. Well, Devin, thanks so much. I would love to talk to you again in the future. I may reach out again. So Okay, then. Let me know. Right. It's a pleasure to be on the show. All right. Have a good one. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. <laughs> Seriously, again, I loved chatting with Devin and have every intention of continuing to try and convince him to start his own show. Huge thanks to Devin for being a part of this episode. And as always, huge thanks to you for listening, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. I'll be back next week with our final episode looking back at 1990, which I can just hardly believe. I do hope you'll join me once again. Until then, no more complaining. No more Mr. Kimball, I have to go to the bathroom. Nothing. There is no bathroom. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1990 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>